looking forward today to getting into the book of Acts together as we had just finished the Gospel of Matthew and uh, interesting timing on how we finished last week with the Great Commission and then here this week we're talking about someone who was involved in the Great Commission. So turn in uh, your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 1 and we will jump into this together. And we will see how we do today. I have a healthy endeavor to get through the whole chapter, but um, I don't know if that's going to happen. We are on God's timetable, not mine. Acts chapter 1, let's read through this together. It's on the screen if you uh, didn't bring your Bible, or perhaps you have a different version than what we're reading from, which happens to be the New King James. Um, But here we go. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons in which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up in a cloud, received Uh, And a cloud, excuse me, received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went uh, up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Lord, thank you for the reading of your word this morning. And we trust, as always, that you will be our teacher, that you will be our guide, and that you will minister to us all that we need this morning and more. Lord, I know as as is always the case with me, even attending yesterday the men's conference, sitting there listening, there were words that you had for me that I didn't know that I needed. And so we are open to what you have for us here today as your servants, as your children. Lord, bless us at everything that we have done and that we are doing in our worship of you, our worship through song, our worship through the word and giving you of our attention, our worship through our, our, our financial giving, our worship and serving you and giving you of our time uh, to love and to serve others. Uh, Lord, open our hearts and our minds to, to your heart, to your vision for this world, the world around us where we live. And show us, Lord, how we might love and serve others the way that Jesus did. In your name we pray, Lord. 
Amen. We last actually looked at the book of Acts as a church, and there's probably only a handful of you here from when we last did that. that we started that 12 years ago in 2010, and uh, we finished up in 2011. And so I was just kind of looking back through all of that. And uh, back then I used to put some things in my notes that I don't really put in my notes as much today. Uh, I was a a lot more, um, I don't know, detailed back then. And uh, I used to take all the announcements. I didn't do all the announcements the way that we do them now. I just gave them to you verbally. So I used to have all of them in my notes. And at that time we were actually, this was two buildings ago. Uh, we were down in Commerce Park in Bedford, uh, way, on, way down the street from here. Um, and at that time, we were refinishing the building that we moved into prior to here, which was 273 South River Road. And as we started the Book of Acts, we were just finishing up that building and getting ready to move in. Um, so it's just kind of a marker in time. It probably means something more to me or a few of us who were here back then. But a lot, of, a lot has transpired since then. Um, the Lord uh, graciously led me into ministry almost 15 years ago, not quite 15 years, it'll be 15 in June since I took over the church. And I am so excited to be in the book of Acts. You have no idea. Uh, Pastor Mitch and I have talked about this for a long time. And I was just like, Lord, when can we go back there? It's such an exciting book. And I, I think I mentioned some of this to you last week and perhaps in previous weeks where I think one of the things that the, the church, this church, but also the church as a whole needs right now, among many things, is that we need to understand what is essential church? What has God designed the church to be and to do? Who is the church? And we're going to get into all of that as we go through the book of Acts because we are dealing with the roots of the church right here today. As we read about that transitional period uh, in the, during the time of Pentecost between when Jesus was resurrected from the dead till the time that he poured out his spirit on his church. And so there's a lot of stuff to get through there. But, you know, there's one thing I want to say at the outset, and I'll probably, I'm probably going to wear this out, and I apologize ahead of time. But one of the things that has divided the church rather than unite the church is the role, the work, and the ministry of the person of the Holy Spirit. When you say the Holy Spirit and you read some of the things that we're going to read this morning and next week, some people are like, yes, this is exciting. And other people are like, well, I don't know. Are you guys Pentecostal? Are you charismatic? Are you uh, on the other end where you don't, you know, the Holy Spirit has no role in what we do? Like, where, where are we with all of this? And I want to just be very simple. I just want to read and believe what the Bible says. There are people who like to look at the book of Acts, especially the birth of the church, and say, this is where Jesus poured out the Spirit on the church. But once the Word of God, what we have is the canon of Scripture, the New Testament was completed, the the necessity of the dramatic work of the Spirit that we see in the book of Acts ceased. And therefore, today we have the indwelling of the Spirit, But we have the word of God, therefore we don't need all of these things that we see here in the book of Acts and the gifts that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13 and 14 and Romans chapter 12. Those things are, you know, nice things, but that was necessary back then. And I don't believe that. 
I believe the gifts of the Spirit are for us today. The work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit is for us today. You see, when Jesus, and we're going to talk about this as we go through this this morning, you know, he said in the upper room with his disciples, go, go read John chapters 13 through 17. In those last few hours as John, in a very detailed way, the Apostle John chronicled all that Jesus spoke to them on that night. And over and over and over, he says, I will not leave you orphans. You know, I'm going to go. I'm one man. I, I, you know, I'm God, but I took the form of man and I'm here among you. But I'm going to go away and, and the Father will send the Spirit to be with you. And the Spirit can be omnipresent because he's the Spirit of God. Spirit can mean uh, breath. It can mean wind. And we're going to see what happens with that next week as we get into chapter 2. But Jesus says, I'm going to send the Spirit to fill you, to lead you, to guide you. We look at the, the title here. Your Bibles might say something like just Acts or the Acts of the Apostles. And certainly it was the Spirit working in and through the lives of the Apostles. But primarily in the book of Acts, we see the, the Spirit of God uh, working in and, and leading through the lives of two men in particular, Peter and Paul. The first half of the book of Acts really is about what God did in and through the life of Peter. And then the second half, pretty much about Paul from that point forward. In fact, as we look at the names and how they're mentioned, Peter's name is mentioned 58 times. Saul and Paul, Saul is mentioned 26 times. Paul is mentioned 134 times. So you can see it's about how God was working through these men. But as we go through the book of Acts, we're going to see how Jesus gave his spirit to his church. And the unique things that he did in giving his spirit to his church, a lot of people look at that and say, well, the the day of Pentecost was a a one-time thing, and I do believe that's true. That was the day that Jesus birthed the church and gave the spirit to the church. But the work of the spirit that we see following the birth of the church is the same work of the spirit that's necessary today. So let's Let's get into it this morning and see what we, we learn here. You know, the, the book of Acts is going to be so amazing as we go through it. It's the history of the New Testament uh, to a large extent. It covers a period of about 30 to 32 years, beginning, you know, from the day of Pentecost all the way out through roughly AD 62 in that time frame. Uh, during the, the going through the book of Acts, we're going to see the, the book of James, Galatians, Matthew, First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Corinthians, Romans, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, First Peter, and First Timothy, all written within the context of Acts chapters one through twenty-eight. So it's going to be exciting in that the book of Acts brings all of this together for us and it highlights for us what God did then. But that as we get to the end of the book of Acts in chapter 28, as we come to the end of it, you'll see it's sort of, it's like a movie. If you, you know, you watch a movie and they kind of leave the end hanging and it's like they just set it up for the sequel. Well, we are living in Acts 29 the continuing work of the Spirit in and through the lives of his people. You see, it says here the Acts of the Apostles. Personally, I'd like to think of it this way. It's the Acts, it's the work of the Holy Spirit whom Jesus sent 
in and through the lives of his people, beginning with the apostles and continuing through us today as his people, as his servants. You see, the book of Acts, this is the beginning, but there is a continuation of the work of the Spirit in and through the lives of his people. So, if you would like to turn back for just a moment as we sort of get grounded here to Luke chapter 24. We're going to pick it up where Luke left off. You see, Luke wrote the book of Acts, but he also wrote the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke. And one of the beautiful things about Luke and how he wrote things is he really was very much acting as an investigative journalist. And so he went and he interviewed a lot of people and he put together a comprehensive compilation of eyewitness accounts, both in the Gospel of Luke as well as in the book of Acts. You see, Luke didn't join Paul and the entourage that God had given to Paul to, you know, to go and to serve on these missionary journeys until Acts chapter 16, which is the sort of the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey. Because in the book of Acts, uh, from chapter 1 up to chapter 15, the pronouns are sort of, um, you know, I and uh, that kind of thing. But then once we get to chapter 16, they change to we and us. Before it was they and them. And so that's when Luke sort of joins uh, the crowd there. So in Luke chapter 24, as we come to the end of his gospel, he says, verse 44, Then he, that is Jesus, said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might, excuse me, comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. So that was the end of the gospel of Luke. Now he begins with his writing of what we now know to be the book of Acts. If you turn all the way back to Luke Chapter 1, one thing you'll notice that he says in his salutation, just get back there for a moment. In Luke chapter 1, he says, uh, verse 1, Inasmuch as many have have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which are most surely believed among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word deliver them to us, It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all these things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. And in the book of Acts, he begins in verse 1, the former account I made, referring to the Gospel of Luke, that writing, 
O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. There's a question of who is this man, Theophilus, and because of the way Luke addressed him in his, uh, his gospel, uh, referring to him as most excellent Theophilus, uh, we believe that Theophilus was a, a Roman uh, noble person, a person of means. And of course, we know that Luke was a medical doctor. Now, in those days, uh, the practice of medicine <clears throat> was certainly not anything like what we have today. Uh, in many cases, doctors were actually slaves. And they were belonging to wealthy <clears throat> people, wealthy businessmen of that sort. So there are a couple of working theories, and keep in mind these are theories, <clears throat> but that Luke, of course, being a doctor, was most likely a slave to someone uh, in the Roman community. Some believe that he might have been actually a slave of Theophilus, and some believe that Theophilus might have actually purchased Luke's freedom from whomever he was serving so that he could go and do what he did here in the Gospel of Luke, as well as in uh, documenting and chronicling for us the acts of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting that the name Theophilus means a lover of God. And uh, I think it's always interesting to look at the names so that we understand. Uh, as, as Luke is writing to him, and certainly in, in Luke's Gospel, the way he addresses him, he says there, in all the things that you were instructed, I wrote this, in a sense, so that I could give it to you, it's like the Gospel of Luke was sort of like, uh, if you think of today, um, oh my goodness, his name just went from my mind, the, the journalist who wrote The Case for Christ, Lee Strobel, thank you. Um, I almost think of the Gospel of Luke like that, that when he wrote it, it was like, this is, I'm writing this so that people will understand, I want to prove who Jesus was. And so he gave that to Theophilus, and Theophilus now has a reach, if he's indeed a Roman uh, nobility, he has a reach in, in a segment of society that people like Luke being a slave or Paul being a, a Jew would not have access to. So it's just interesting how God has his people where he wants them to be. So he's writing this here, the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus, note, began both to do and to teach. You see, the work of Jesus didn't stop the day he was crucified. It didn't stop the day that he was resurrected and then uh, later, of course, ascended into heaven. You see, the work of Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, the Son of God, continues through the person of the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus said of himself, he says, um, I look to my Father, I listen to my Father, and all that the Father tells me, that's what I speak, and what he shows me to do, that's what I do. Jesus said, speaking of the person and work of the Holy Spirit, I will send him to you, and he will testify of me. So Jesus is saying, essentially, he pointed to the Father, and the Spirit is going to point to both him and the Father. So the work of Jesus as the Son of God, as the Messiah, continues today because of the presence of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. As we get into the book of Acts and we begin going through this, we're going to talk about, 
you know, when did the Holy Spirit come? Yes, he came on the, the day of Pentecost, but for us today as believers, we are told in the book of Ephesians that the Spirit of God comes to indwell us when we believe in Christ. So every believer has the same Spirit of God that we're going to read about here in the book of Acts. The same Spirit. Not a different Spirit. Not a Spirit who today, because it's 2,000 years later, is old and tired. The same Spirit, the vibrant Spirit, who infected the church on that day as He came upon them and empowered them to be His witnesses. So Theophilus, until the day in which Jesus was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. So Luke is saying here, now looking back on it, Jesus, of course, told his disciples about the Spirit, but Jesus spoke by the Spirit. Now you remember when Jesus was baptized? Remember what happened that day? He walked out to meet John, and John said, I'm not worthy to, to untie his sandal. You know, one day when the, son, the Lamb of God comes, who takes away the sin of the world, you know, it's going to be an, an awesome thing. And then Jesus comes on the scene and he's like, Lord, I, I, I'm not worthy. He says, you should be baptizing me, not me baptizing you. And Jesus said to him, no, that, permit it to be so, so that all righteousness might be fulfilled, that God's plan would take place. And as Jesus went into the waters of the Jordan River with John the baptizer, and as he was baptized, you remember what happened? As he came up out of the water, they saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove upon Jesus and that voice from heaven that said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. From the very moment, the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus, God himself in human flesh, needed because God gave to him the Spirit to, be, to, to come upon him at the beginning of his ministry. So what Jesus is now doing is he is repeating here for us, for his church, for his bride, the same thing that happened to him. Listen, if Jesus needed the Holy Spirit, how much more do you and I need the Holy Spirit? Just, just say it. <laughs> to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering, verse 3, by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. During those 40 days, Jesus appeared to them. Now, it helps us to understand how the feasts worked. There was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, then there was the Feast of the Passover, and that, that week we now know as uh, Passion Week, and that Sunday when Jesus came in and the triumphal entry, there was the, the preparation for the Feast of the Passover. They had the Feast of Unleavened Bread, then the next day they had the Feast of the Passover. And then the day after the Feast of the Passover began, a 50-day waiting period, Pentecost, Pente means five or 50, uh, there was 50 days between Passover and Pentecost. Now just think with me through this for a moment. Uh, Jesus was crucified on Passover. He went into the grave for three days. 50 minus 3 is 47. Jesus came and appeared to his disciples for 40 days uh, after his uh, resurrection. That leaves seven days. And so there was a period of about seven days between when Jesus ascended 
And when the Spirit came upon them there in the city of Jerusalem. Now, we can't quote that exactly. That's just kind of thinking through it there. But it all kind of fits. And so when it says here that that Jesus uh, had appeared to them by many infallible proofs, if you don't have to turn there, you can write this down, but you're welcome to. 1 Corinthians 15, chapter 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received in which you stand, by which you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, who was Peter, and then by the twelve. And after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. And after that, he was seen by James, then all of the apostles. So Jesus appeared to his disciples during those 40 days. And it says in verse 4, after, and being assembled together with them, Jesus you know, being with the disciples, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. What was the promise of the Father? It was the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a number of scriptures here we can read through. I'll read through a couple with you. In John chapter 14, Verse 16, I will pray the Father, Jesus speaking, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you uh, with you, and will be in you. Later in John 14, but this helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. John 15, but when the helper the, the comes, <coughs> excuse me, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me and you will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. John 16, however, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you the things to come. Jesus said, whatever I hear the Father speaking, that's what I speak to you. Now, you see, it's being transferred to the Spirit, and whatever he hears, he will speak. That's one of the many reasons why we need the Spirit. At the end of John's Gospel, John chapter 20 uh, this is appearing to them after the resurrection. Uh, he showed him his, his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Uh, John twenty twenty one. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, the Spirit hadn't been given at the day of Pentecost yet, but he was imparting to them his Spirit before he leaves to go away uh, into heaven. And in verse 5, Acts, back to Acts chapter 1, For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, when we take the time to go through 
the Gospel of John and we look at all of the prepositions that were used, here's what happened. The Spirit will be with you, He will be in you, and He will come upon you. With, in, and upon. So up to this point in time, the Spirit had been with them. Jesus said he will be in you. He breathed the Spirit on them. We just read about that. And now he's saying, you shall be baptized with the Spirit not many days from now. Acts 1.5. This is, you know, Luke recording what Jesus said. You see, in water baptism... You know, the the person baptizing is baptizing the, the person being baptized in water. And the issue is forgiveness of sins and repentance. And he says, you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Here, Jesus is the baptizer. We are being immersed in or baptized in or through the Holy Spirit. And the issue is power to be his witnesses. So here he's saying these disciples, these apostles, would be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now in that time that he was speaking to them. And as they were about to go through that, they really didn't know what it would look like. Perhaps they knew of, if they were there, you know, certainly not all of them were there with Jesus when he was baptized by John, but they had heard the stories. And so, we come to this time here where they're wondering what's going to happen. Verse 6, therefore when they had come together, they asked him saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now Jesus had been telling them, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And now they shift their focus to what's really in their heart and their mind, which is, well, prophetically, Lord, what's going to happen next? When will the kingdom come to Israel? When when are you going to do that part? And he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. A.W. Tozer said, in the early church, If the Holy Spirit had been removed from them, 95% of what they were doing would have stopped. Today, if the Holy Spirit were removed from the church, 95% of what we are doing would continue. I think that's an indictment on the the lack of dependency that the modern day church has upon the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. You see, we've... This is what always happens with everything, right? Laws get made because the few ruin something for the many, right? I can't tell you the number of times over the last 15 years someone's come to me, but, you know, something happened, you know, a little kid did something, or, you know, someone came in from the street and they kind of, you know, created this situation, and then people come and say, we need a rule for this. This happens all the time, right? Right? We need a policy for this. We need, we need to go get in the back room and write a policy so that when these situations, and I was like, no, no. We'll deal with the situation and we'll just keep going. We'll pray and ask the Lord what to do. 
but we're not going to write a big policy manual of all the stuff, you know, for every possible contingent situation that could arise. We're here to be the hands and the feet and the, and the face of Jesus to people. We want to be led by the Spirit. We want to be governed by the Spirit. The Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. The Word of God is imperative. You can't have the Holy Spirit without the Word of God. Jesus says you don't need to know all those things right now. What you need to know is that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now listen, this is the way the Holy Spirit always works. He begins to work in the life of a person. In this particular case, as the church is being birthed, he said, wait in Jerusalem, tarry in Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, then you shall be witnesses. The word witness is our word martyr. So the word martyr, we always think of martyr as someone who's willing to die for their faith, and that's true, but a martyr is a witness. The whole idea of a martyr as a person who is a witness is that we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we believe what this book says. And he says, you are going to be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that's what happened as we get into the book of Acts. The Spirit of God fell upon them on Jer in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. The gospel, that was the epicenter of that earthquake of the Holy Spirit, if I can describe it in those terms. And it was from there that the work of the Lord began to emanate outward from the, the place of Jerusalem where the, the church was birthed. Then, he says, Jerusalem, all Judea. Judea is the surrounding area. Jerusalem's the city. Basically, think of it like a county, just for the sake of trying to get your head into this. And Samaria, maybe like the state. And then the ends of the earth. And this is what always happens when people get saved, when they get born again, wherever they are becomes their Jerusalem. And then as God begins to work in their life or in the life of a church, he emanates out and he wants to go from there to your Samaria, to your Judea, and to the ends of the earth. Think about it like this. If you could put, you know, a pin in the map of every church or every place where there are believers and then you put those concentric circles, you know, sort of like a, an epicenter of something happening and spreading, you know, like a ripple in, the, in a, the, the lake when you throw the rock in, that's how the Holy Spirit has designed that it should always be. Wherever we are is our Jerusalem. And as he begin to work, begins to work in our lives, then he affects our Judea and our Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. Paul wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, Timothy, I want you to find faithful men, invest your lives in them, and then help them to uh, invest their lives in other faithful men also. Teach them that they may teach others. And we should always be about, as Christians, training the trainer. That, that's our goal. That's our mission. Our goal is not to be an island unto ourselves. You know, sometimes I wonder today in our megachurch world, when we see churches becoming 5,000, 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 people, honestly, I, I, I'm not saying they're wrong. They have to listen to the Lord on, on their part. But now let's plant churches right? Let's plant churches from that church. If the Lord ever blessed us to, to, to become, you know, a church with many people in it, I would hope that what we would do is say, look, 
Where do you people live? Where are you coming from? Okay, let's plant a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church out there. It's okay to have small churches. That's okay. We want to go out into our Judea and our Samaria, and we want to infect it, as it were, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus said. This is what would happen. These people, these men, these women would be infected with the Spirit. They would be baptized by the Spirit. And they would become His witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts. And so, when He had spoken these things, while they watched, He was taken up, and a cloud received Him out of their sight. So Jesus is now being taken away. He's going up into heaven, the ascension. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. We believe these are angels. We aren't told specifically. And also, uh, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. In other words, just as Jesus ascended there from the Mount of Olives, He'll come back one day, and Zechariah tells us about that. We could go do a whole Bible study about that, about when Jesus actually comes in the second coming to set foot on the earth again. And then they returned to Jerusalem, verse 12, from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And this is the point at which I believe, you know, they've they've hit about 43 days, and they've got about seven days left. And when they had entered, they went into the upper room where they were staying, Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, and Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. And these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So now they're doing what Jesus said. They're there tarrying in Jerusalem, waiting for him to come, waiting for him to send the Spirit. And it says there that they continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. So they're waiting on the Lord. They're praying. They're worshiping. They're just saying, Lord, we're we're just here, just waiting for you to send your spirit, as you said. And we're just waiting for you to complete what you said you would do. You know, they're now getting it. You know, prior to the resurrection, they were, prior to the crucifixion, they were very skittish, right? They, They had trouble. They were like ADD, spiritual ADD, weren't they? Now, after everything that's happened, they're focused in on what Jesus said. So they're waiting, they're praying, they're worshiping. And as they were waiting, as they were praying, as they were worshiping, verse 15, in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples, although the number of the names was about 120, and said, men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now, this man purchased the field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that this field is called in their own language, Akel Dama, that is, field of blood." For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it and let another take his office. Therefore of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed to Joseph called Barsabbas, 
who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and they said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots and the lot fell on Matthias and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So they felt that they needed to have that completion, that there needed to be that 12th person. Uh, You know, Jesus had told them through their time with him that there should be 12 there were 12 tribes, there was some uh, symbology there, some tying together of the number 12, the number of government, perfect government. And so, of course, Judas had betrayed, and he's, you know, Peter's reciting here the scriptures. They now know in hindsight, looking back, that Judas uh, was with them, but he was a traitor, and he had betrayed Jesus. And so he quotes the scriptures from the Psalms, and you can look up in your cross-references there, Psalm 69 and the other places where it's mentioned. And they understand as the Spirit is beginning to work in them that the Lord is directing them to the fact that it's time for someone to rise up. Now it's interesting, and there's sort of two schools of thoughts on, on this, on how they came about choosing the replacement for Judas. It says here, uh, they talked among themselves. They proposed to Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. So they sort of had a little caucus among themselves, and they said, okay, who here has been with us from the beginning, who's been a part of the entourage all the time during the ministry of Jesus, that we could also sort of raise up, you know, to be one of the 12 to take the place of Judas? So as they did that, and they sort of had their determination that there would would be these two names. Notice in verse 24, and they prayed and they said, you, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen. So they then basically drew lots and uh, it fell on Matthias. And that was their method for determining who would be the 12th apostle. Now, people wonder, was Matthias truly an apostle? You see, we don't really hear much from him after this point. He's not mentioned. We don't talk much about him. But we do know this. A little bit later, in the Lord's time, another man comes along. What was his name? Saul of Tarsus. And certainly the Lord chose him. And Paul himself said he was an apostle, in fact, you know, as, as we read along, Paul sort of alludes to the fact that in the beginning he wasn't really accepted as one of them until the time came that they accepted him in as an apostle. So was Paul the 12th apostle or was 12, Paul the 13th apostle? I don't know. I'll leave that up to you. My personal opinion, and that's all it is, is that Matthias probably was not that guy who was going to be the 12th, that it was indeed to be Paul, but that this is perhaps a lesson to us to be careful with how we go about making decisions. You know, they talked among themselves, okay, these two guys, let's throw their name in the pot, draw a name out of the hat, it's Matthias, let's go with Matthias. Maybe, and it might have been, Matthias might have indeed been that 12th apostle. But again, if you, if you go in your Bible program and you search, where's Matthias? And in fact, really, in the book of Acts, 
the other apostles really aren't spoken of very much going forward. Again, it's really Peter, Peter and John in the beginning, and then Paul the apostle. So out of all this today, as we sort of read through this, what's, what's happening now, we're being sort of set up for chapter 2, which is the birth of the church. And so they've been told to wait, to wait for Jesus to send his spirit. And so that's what they are doing. And Jesus had told them, as, again, as we read in verse 8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. I think today that the church at large is largely ineffective because we have all these different views on the Holy Spirit. And, and, and you know, when we see things happening out there, when we see, you know, our, our Pentecostal or charismatic brothers and sisters who are kind of out there on the edge doing some crazy stuff that's, in my opinion, outside the Word of God, we look at that and we say, I don't want that, right? That, that's crazy. And so what we do is we, we always end up in this situation, I think, this is just human nature, where we, in a sense, and I'll use this term, throw the baby out with the bathwater. Where we kind of go, well, that obviously can't be the work of the Spirit because it's outside the Word of God, it's crazy. Therefore, we, we kind of go to the other side, right? The pendulum swings and we go back over here to this side, which I would call cessationism, which says that the, the Spirit doesn't work today the way He did back then, or He ceased working, uh, you know, at the end of the first century in that way, and today his, his role is much more restrained. But here's the thing. I don't know if any of you know missionaries who are in overseas, right, in other parts of the world. You talk to them, and they will tell you stories, that they do see things. They see miracles, they see God providing, not just, you know, as a check mysteriously shows up in the mail. But, but I know missionaries who, who, like George Mueller, when you read missionary biographies, th this will help you if you read these things. People who are, they're destitute, they're serving the Lord, they're called, they're out there doing whatever they're doing, serving where they're serving, and they come to the table and they go, well, Lord, we've got nothing to eat. And they sit down and they pray and they say, Lord, we're your servants. And they open their eyes and there's food on the table. These things have happened. We know people whom this has happened to. And I think largely the church in America, the Western church, we have come to a place in our lives where we've thrown out the ministry of the Spirit because we see the abuses and the excesses and we say, well, it can't be that, therefore I'm afraid of the Spirit. And I, and I think that's, that's what Satan does. He pollutes things. Look at what he's done, and this is, this is Dean's opinion. If you don't like it, that's okay. I believe what he's done with COVID globally. I believe it's a work of Satan. I'm not saying the virus isn't real, or that we shouldn't care. But I think he's caused this confusion. He's caused fear to reign upon the people of God. There are many, many churches. I was just talking to someone yesterday. Um, there who lives in another part of the world. Their church hasn't met, has been off and on by the government they haven't been allowed to meet in this, this particular country. I mean, we, we have it easy here, folks, compared to people in other parts of the world. And if Satan can rule by fear and intimidation, he can effectively stop the church in its tracks. And I think he's done that. I think he's been effective in doing that. 
Whenever we feel governed by fear, when fear causes us to make decisions and we make decisions based on fear, we're in a bad place. We're in a dangerous place. And when it comes to the Spirit of God and the Word of God and the church and the mission that God has given the church through the Great Commission, first of all, to meet together and to assemble and to worship and to be strengthened and to be encouraged and to be fed and to be filled up. And we are the church gathered and then we become the church scattered and we go out into the world. You know, and and think of it like this. We come on Sundays, we get fed and we get filled up and then we go out during the week to our workplaces and to the world. And we take the light of Jesus. We take the bread of life with us to those places around us. Then we come back and we get filled up again. Or you have your personal devotions and you do those things. That's what God wants us to do. And that should never stop no matter what happens. If you live in 1941 in Nazi Germany, you still go out and you share the gospel. People did that, right? If you live in a time where there's a war and and things are restricted, you still go out and share the gospel. If you live in a time where there's some global pandemic and there's a virus traveling around the world, you still go out and you share the gospel. But think about it strategically. Go up to 30,000 feet and look down and say, "What if I were Satan and I wanted to stop the church in its tracks, here's what I would do. I would make everybody think that if they go gather 500 students down in Baltimore, God forbid that, hey, what if somebody gets COVID? Now it's a COVID super spreader event. Oh my gosh, we got to shut these things down. We can't let this happen. Oh, churches, people are meeting and worshiping. They're singing. They're spewing their particles into the air. Everybody's going to get sick. We've got to stop the worship of God. Do you understand what Satan has done? He has limited the church from doing and being what God wants the church to do and to be. Now again, I'm not saying, hey, it, if you have a condition and, and you need to be at home, that's okay. I'm not, I'm not putting guilt on anyone. I'm just saying, I believe that's what's happened. But by the Spirit of God, listen, if my name's written in his book all the days of my life, such as are, or, are ordained by him, now, I'm not going to go out and be crazy and reckless. I'm not going to sit on the front bumper of the car and have you drive me down the road at 80 miles an hour. But I'm not going to be fearful about doing what God's called me to do. If God calls me to get on a plane and go somewhere, I'm going to do it. I don't care what the law says. And we need to understand, folks, the Spirit of God empowers us to do the work of God. 1 John, perfect love casts out all fear. Fear is not of faith. Fear and faith cannot coexist together. You're either full of faith or you're full of fear. Just make sure you know when you make your decisions, whatever you do, look, wear a mask, don't wear a mask. I don't care. You can do both in faith. But don't let the fear of a virus or the fear of what a government official says keep you from worshiping God and from doing what God wants you to do. Think of where we would be if these first century uh, disciples who were under Roman oppression didn't 
go into those places and share the gospel. As we get into Paul's missionary journeys, it's crazy. Peter going into Gentile places. I mean, he, he had that stigma, right? He was afraid to go into Gentile places because that's, Jews don't do that. Jews don't co-mingle with Gentiles. You become defiled. Jesus had already proven to them that's not the case. It's not what goes into a man that defiles him. It's what comes out of him. So therefore, that food that you're going to eat, Peter, I'm going to take you up on the rooftop, give you a vision. Then I'm going to tell you to go into a Gentile's house and preach the gospel to them. Remember what happened there? Peter goes in, Acts chapter 10. He walks into their house. He, he, barely, he walks in and he's barely like, who are you people and what's going on? And they, they're just having conversation and the Spirit fell on them. And he's like, whoa, what was I supposed to do? The Spirit just fell upon them. I just showed up. I didn't even know what happened. And God was showing him, I'm going to do what I want to do and save whom I want to save and work how I want to work. And I just want you to be a part of it. We have to lay down our fears. Lay down it. It's the same thing with prejudice, right? We look at situations. I mean, God help us, right? The church should not be a place of prejudice. And if God calls us to go somewhere and go into a community, we should just go and do it. Because he says so. Because he loves people. We want the heart of God. If the spirit of God dwells in me and dwells in you, then he's given us his heart. He's given us his mind. Paul says, hey, we have the mind of Christ. We, we need to learn to let go of these preconceived notions about who the spirit is and how he works and just let him work. Look, if the spirit of God wants to give you a gift of tongues, praise God for that. Then use it to glorify God. See, here's the problem. It's not about the gift, and it's not about the person to whom the gift was given. God gives a gift so he can use it for his glory. That's the bottom line. The gift is never given to elevate or to glorify the person. Jesus said, the Spirit speaks of me. If you have a gift of the Spirit and you're using that gift of the Spirit to serve the Lord, then it's always to glorify Jesus. It's never about me. Never. Whoever stands in this pulpit, whoever leads worship, it's never about them. It's about the Lord. Everything we do has to be vertically pointed, right? We're here to worship the Lord. He's the one who redeemed us by his blood. And as we come to the Lord's table, let's remember that. We are the redeemed. He is the redeemer. He uses his people to honor and to glorify him. He wants to give us power to be his witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. As we get into the book of Acts, let's be open to what the Lord wants to do in us, to us, and through us. Lord, we love you this morning, and you said that we need to be born again, and we want to start there, Lord. If there's anyone here who's not born again, either listening online or uh, present. Lord, we, we ask that today would be the day of their salvation when they turn their lives over to you and they stop <clears throat> struggling and striving. And they just say, Lord, come into my life and forgive me of my sin. And uh, Lord, I don't even know what it all means, but I just want to turn from my ways and I want to follow you. Lord, would you do that this morning for them? And Lord, uh, for those of us here who 
maybe just need to be refreshed and renewed in the power of your spirit, we just open our lives up to you and we say, Lord, if you want to do to us what you did to those disciples and just baptize us with your spirit and give us a fresh vision and fresh power to take away that fear so that we are just ready to share Christ with whomever, with the Amazon driver or the UPS driver or the Uber driver or the person at CVS or wherever we go, Lord, market basket. Lord, Lord, just to understand that it's not about us anyway, it's about you. We're telling people about the person who has loved us like no other and who has saved us and redeemed us, who has brought peace to a world of chaos in our lives, who is the one about whom we say, as Scripture says, that you give us a peace that surpasses understanding because you've come into our lives. Lord, that's what we want. Not just for ourselves, but so that we might bring others along with us into your kingdom. So Lord, as we come to the table this morning, minister to us. As we sing this song, would you just cause our hearts to burst with with love and with joy toward you. So Lord, we love you. We know we can say that because you first loved us. We know we can say it because you've given of your spirit to dwell within us. Can I ask you this morning, would you say that to the Lord, whether it's out loud or just in your own heart, Lord, I love you. In Jesus' name, amen.